accepting, the understanding that comes with service to God. We just sang a song about being in the glory land way. And as we sang that with spirit, and as we sang that with a degree of encouragement, we're so mindful, no doubt, about the blessing that's ours connected to the mindset of being in the glory land way. As I promised you this morning, we'll come tonight to a lesson involving criticism. Now that's a topic that may well be something that rests upon each of our hearts, a matter that gives us some degree of pause, a matter, in fact, of some degree of controversy. This opening slide is an introductory one that I hope will not only set before us the idea connected to this, but also will allow us to think more of it with regard to the lesson tonight. Criticism, quite frankly, is a matter of notable challenge. And I say that for this reason. It really works in two directions. It can be a rather challenging thing to give criticism to someone else. Because after all, not only is the choice of words critical, and not only is the timing a matter of some consideration, there's also a matter of motivation. Am I offering this for the right purpose and reason? But on the other hand, what about the person on the receiving end of the criticism? After all, there's often a great deal of danger connected with attitude concerning that, as well as how that criticism is going to be received. For that reason tonight, could we use some texts in the Word of God that will offer us some helpfulness, not only in some very practical rules that might benefit us in light of offering and receiving criticism, but also encourage us with regard to the very act of criticism itself. You'll notice the last couple of things on that slide. May I offer the thought that there is a fair amount of danger, even peril, that can be connected with criticism when it's done badly. That is to say, when it is offered in a way that's not quite frankly the best. The person might receive it in such a way that friendships might be severed. Connections might well be altered. Viewpoints might well ne'er be the same again. I say all that to say that the Word of God thankfully does have some things that can be advantageous to us. And why don't we thus begin with just a rather general slide reminding us of the whole idea, the main concept connected to criticism. Could I point out that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? And I might say that not only is that a description in Romans 3.23 about a state of affairs spiritually, you and I also know in 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9, that's an ongoing matter. The man that says he has no sin deceives himself and the truth is not in him. That means you and I aren't in a position to thus say, I've arrived at a point wherein I shall need no criticism and I shall need no correction or rebuking in any way. That not only is dangerous, it's untrue. You'll notice on the slide then, could I say that we really don't even need to talk about matters connected directly to sinfulness. It could just be opportunities for the development in life. For instance, two individuals may be such that both of them are presenting ideas relative to the pursuit of some matter of interest. One of them may have an idea that involves inefficiency, wastefulness, and maybe even inappropriateness. The other thus may well find it needful to offer some strong thoughts hopeful to redirect the other person's attention and the other person's viewpoint. 
Well, see, there it may not be that it's necessarily a sinful matter, but it is something important for the stewardship of resources, for the matter connected to that which is right, and for the matter connected to what's in fact the best. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, criticism can thus be something important, something rather needful, something quite significant. It is for that reason we'll race toward the bottom of that slide and say it like this. It is our conviction to be sure that this book contains every good piece of advice, every viewpoint which would be needful and appropriate. And so could I offer you the thought that surely within the confines of this book, there then will be practical advice and important counsel that can help us not only be the proper recipients of criticism, but also to be those who can properly give it. What might some of those principles be? I've mentioned to you rather easily that the Word of God, we're told in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And I note this, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works, so there, you and I are told that the Word of God is good for reproof. It's good for instruction. You and I believe that even in connection to criticism. As we close that slide then, isn't it fair to say, criticism can be something done very, very well. It seems to me the Apostle Paul was a master at it. He could directly look at someone, challenge them right up front with the Word of God, and do so at times in a very kind and in a very delicate way. The book of Philemon, it seems to me, to be a marvelous example. On the other hand, it is entirely possible criticism can be done very badly. Let's tonight study a few things that can help us not be those who either give it or accept it in a way that's bad. I've divided the lesson into two parts. Let's first of all study for the next few minutes about offering criticism to others. When that time comes in a circumstance, in a relationship, in a situation, in which perhaps you or I would be called upon to deliver some criticism of someone else, what might be some rules of thumb, some basic guidelines that could be of value to us to carry that out in the most effective in the most workable and in the most positive way possible. In Galatians 2 verse 11, first of all, there was a moment in which you and I can remember that between Peter and Paul, two giants in the arena of the New Testament, you and I recall that Peter had erred. That is to say, he had made a choice that was not only poor, but in fact caused others to stumble. And in response to that, Paul, upon learning of that situation, said, I confronted him. I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. One of the first rules of thumb then might be there could well be occurrences, situations that demand your attention and mind. As these occur in the life of someone else, we may then be called upon to share some criticism, to offer some thoughtful advice to present to that person some counsel. Maybe they hadn't thought of it, but even if they had, it may well do a great world of good for them to hear it from the way you and I might present it. 
that text reminds us criticism can be an important thing then. The next point would then be be this one. This is an admonition to each of us. Borrowing the words of Psalm 25, verse number 7. There the psalmist put it like this, Remember not the sins of my youth. That seems to directly call to our attention the thought that perhaps in the past, perhaps at times we found ourselves guilty of things we're not too proud of today. Maybe at that time I lived in a way that wasn't entirely the best. Could I use this to motivate each of us? May you and I so live each day in wisdom so that we do not need at some point to beg somebody, don't remember the sins of my youth. Have you ever heard someone say, do as I say and not as I do? Well, I think we've all been in a position to maybe be less than impressed by that because, after all, if the sins of that person's past were of such nature that he or she must ask, don't remember what I did, listen more to what I'm saying. That can take some of the power away from our advice. It can remove some of the earnestness and directness connected to what otherwise would be such a potent proposition. As you can well imagine, here are a few words of wisdom from the Word of God. The first one I've asked you to consider is this one. When it's possible, always cast a spotlight upon the action and not the person. There certainly could be times when the person needs to be addressed, but in most instances, the issue that is at hand is a particular deed or action or word that was done. A matter that can be an issue in temptation is as you then criticize or at least address the person, you may start the conversation that way, but it soon turns into an insult to their character. You basically go beyond what the initial matter was, and start leaning into other matters of concern. May I say that's not wise. The issue at hand might well be one that takes us back to the text I ask you to consider. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 17 and 18, the the Apostle Paul made this observation. There were two gentlemen, Philetus and Hymenaeus. To be sure, Paul called them by name, But did you notice he didn't slander their character? He said, this is what they believe that is not right. That is to say, he cast a spotlight on the issue at hand, the matter itself, the action, if you please, and not the overall thrust, at that moment at least, of their character. Sometimes you and I can can fall prey to doing that differently. We have an idea in mind, and that may, may well be a fantastic one. But then we soon, in conversation, allow it to evolve into something else. And we soon have broadened the discussion to the point where it becomes rather useless. Look at the next point of practicality. It's far better to criticize in private than it is in public. I believe we can each understand why. In a public setting, in a public venue, there is attention drawn and there is issues that can be that can may well be presented that would not be duly noted and duly of consideration. Isn't it true in Acts 18? Aquila and Priscilla took Apollos 
privately. And they addressed the issue there that he was, in fact, preaching incorrectly. They took care of the matter privately. That's good, sound advice. You and I ought not then take someone into a public venue and use that as the setting in which we rebuke or at least criticize them. It's far better. Pull them aside privately. You can speak more candidly. You can speak without fear of someone overhearing and misconstruing what was said. Handle it privately. What about the next piece of advice? In addition to that one, be truthful. In every way, be truthful. You may be quick to think, well, that goes without saying, doesn't it? But there is one aspect of that that, again, can pose a fair amount of challenge. And that has to do with exaggeration. Again, you and I may begin a given conversation with a par marvelously constructed idea of criticism. But then as the moment arrives, we begin to describe other matters, and we use, we use adverbs such as always. You always do this. Or maybe we use the word never. You never do this. Could I remind each of us, those two adverbs are extremely strong. When you say that someone always does something, that means they never do anything in that situation other than what you're claiming. Is that true? Do you and I know that? When you and I use the word never, we are conveying the idea that never in a single situation do they ever do anything other than that in that situation. Is that true? Do you and I know that to be a fact? I would just offer the thought, those two words, we need to be careful about them. Never and always are very strong. May I say, they then are a part of exaggeration. As we discuss with someone, we suddenly leap from an issue of immediate import, and we use it to say, but you always do this, or you've never done this. Point is, those may not be true. The initial thought we had in mind may very much be true, but then we weaken our consideration by using these adverbs, which aren't exactly the right thing. You'll notice the next point on the slide is to call your attention to some verses in which we see this evidence, and we see these words of counsel presented to us. In Ephesians 4, verses 25 and 26, we are admonished to always speak the truth in every situation. In Colossians 3, verse 9, we put away lying in every form in which it appears. In addition to those two, may I ask you to note in Matthew 18, verse 15, how important it was for Jesus to admonish each of us to stay on topic. Have you ever found yourself in conversation with someone and maybe you entered the conversation with a particular thought in mind and an hour and a half later, well into this conversation, you've touched every subject except the one you wanted to talk about. You have proceeded through a whole host of digressions talking about a whole host of other ideas. Well, maybe in that sense, you and I aren't particularly good at staying on topic. Jesus forever said, if, you're, if you have something against your brother, you go and tell him what? His fault. It's not the time to talk about everything else. You stay on topic, the Lord said. 
Isn't that good advice for each of us? When those moments of criticism arise, may you and I use that moment, use that situation with the way in which we've prepared it in our mind, and we speak about it by staying on topic. Nextly, may we use sound speech. Paul encouraged Titus in Titus 2 verse 8, Always use sound speech so that those will have no occasion to call into question your motivation or the other characteristics of what has brought this about. You know, it is true. Sometimes you and I might have the idea for criticism, but in the way we present it, in the moment in which we share it, we begin to cast it in language that's less than pure. Maybe it comes to have something like a life of its own. That's not wise, and that's not good. Near the bottom of that slide, only two more things. The first of which is this one. What is the motive for you and I to criticize? May I say that that's one of the first issues to be resolved. If there's something in your heart or life that I have witnessed and evidenced this, and I would wish to bring a matter of criticism, the first thing I should ask is, why am I doing this? Am I doing it just to make myself look good? If so, it's better left unsaid, probably. Am I doing this only to give myself an air of superiority over you? That's not the wise motivation either. But if I'm doing it because I am concerned for your well-being, for the well-being of those who know you, and for the standard which is that of Christianity. That's a different story. That would motivate and encourage the criticism to be done rightly. So again, the motivation is a rather significant matter. Look at the verse I've asked you to notice. It's the one Brother John read earlier. Galatians 6 verse 1. Brethren, if any of you be overtaken in a fault... Then ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. In other words, you and I need to recognize that there is a significance to meekness. Now that doesn't mean weakness, and it doesn't mean full of apology. It means to, in love, with a proper motivation to bring this matter before the attention of another to do so in kindness and in tact, never with an air of superiority and never with an air of better than you, but to do so with an attitude of meekness, considering thyself lest you're also going to be tempted. Isn't it entirely true that the very issue brought before this other person, the time could come you and I may find some matter occupying our heart, and we may well need to be criticized by somebody else. It's an interesting thing to ponder these ideas about giving criticism. The last thing I would offer as a thought of consideration might be this one. I would think it probably wise to reflect upon this thought. If you or I are only known for trying to criticize and rebuke and correct, it's likely folks aren't going to want to talk to us very much. It's far better to certainly be given to this when needed, but may that not be the only thing that ever crosses our mind. 
Not the only thing that ever occupies our thinking is finding fault or seeking to help the faults. Remember, didn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7 how important it is to occupy those thoughts of positivity when in fact that is the order of the day? So far we've talked about giving criticism. What about receiving it? This next slide will encourage you to think with me about some of these helpful issues as well. What happens when you and I are on the receiving end of criticism? What happens when someone else has approached us with an issue of concern? How do we react? How do we respond? How do we reply? I began this slide with what I think is probably three statements well worth our attention. Receiving criticism, in some respects, can be even more difficult than giving it. I realize what we just discussed is not always trivial in terms of properly giving it, but at least by way of observation and by our own experience, isn't it also true that receiving it sometimes offers its own set of independent challenges? Could I share with you three possibilities that it seems to me would be, again, worth noting? I suppose there's a degree of human tendency to discount criticism for one of three reasons. First of all, the imperfections in the person giving the criticism. That is to say, you may well know of certain things in that person's life, and maybe the immediate reaction is, well, why are you telling me anything? you got some problems I think you need to deal with on your own. Have you ever been in a situation like that? It may well be you do know of some circumstances, either in that person's life or that person's family, and maybe the immediate reply is, well, I don't think I, you have anything to share with me. You need to get your own house in order first. And with that, you sweep under the rug everything the person said and give it no further thought except maybe being upset with them. But there's also a tendency for that second one. Maybe there is something to be said about what the person has noted, but it's not completely attached to all the facts. The person may have known some things, and maybe due to no fault of their own, they didn't know everything. And so as they share at least partly what they do understand out of concern, you discount everything they say because all the facts are not included. That too, I suppose, is a strong tendency. In the third place, this one, I suppose, is maybe one of the most serious. That person has approached you or me. They have expressed concern over something they have witnessed or seen in us. But because it wasn't handled in exactly the way that we would have preferred, we immediately discount every bit of it. I believe we can each identify those three possibilities are easily those things which allow a person to simply discount anything the criticism had within it. But that isn't good. That's not ideal. Let's move to the next point on that slide. Do you remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus by nine in John chapter 3? Early in that chapter, you and I are given an impression. Here was a man, a Jew, may I add, who came to the Lord, and he came at night. Can't you and I note this? There were very many Jews who came to visit Jesus, period. 
the Jews by and large rejected the Lord. And they certainly didn't invest the additional effort to come at night, perhaps at their own expense. One would have to come in, Nicodemus, in many ways, it would seem to me. And yet the Lord directly criticized him. Now you and I know the Lord knew his heart. But have you ever thought about this? Apparently Nicodemus received that criticism wonderfully because he's mentioned two more times in the Gospel according to John. And in both instances, he's a devout follower of the Lord, one who in fact has set aside the matter of public opinion in regard to the Jews and given himself to be a servant of the Lord. Doesn't it seem that Nicodemus apparently received criticism fairly well? I think we could learn a lot from him. We might well be appreciative of the fact that when the Lord addressed him that night, he did so in earnestness, and he did so with directness. It is the case in light of that. Could I offer this word of wisdom? You and I would do well to listen to the criticism. Don't immediately discount it. Don't immediately try to talk over the person. Don't immediately try to insult them and just simply go on with the situation. Didn't James remind us, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. You and I would do well to at least listen to what they have to say. It may well be in the final analysis that the issues connected to what they say are not matters that should be completely followed because maybe they don't have all the information. But we should at least recognize the fact they cared enough. They were mindful enough to say something to me. It isn't easy to speak to someone in that way, is it? You wonder how they'll react. Will they become upset? Will they become defensive? Will they become overly to the point that they destroy our friendship? I suppose all of us have right to be concerned. They cared enough, apparently, to at least say something. Nicodemus apparently recognized that. When Jesus directed to the face and said, You mean you're a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? How would you have reacted? Would you have felt insulted? Would you have felt one who was belittled? Apparently Nicodemus didn't allow that to move him aside from following Jesus. That again is worthy of commendation. Another passage to be found in Proverbs 18.13. It is a folly when you and I answer a matter before we hear it. You and I thus need to at least listen to what's said. In the next case, may you and I not fall into the trap of immediately responding by way of those issues that I listed earlier. Remember, simply discounting what's said due to the person's imperfections, simply discounting what's said because the matter wasn't handled rightly, discounting what was said simply because of the issues connected to the correction otherwise noted. Well, again, you and I shouldn't respond that way. Look at verses like this one. In 2 Samuel 14, beginning in verse 14, you and I might remember that Joab crafted an interesting way to rebuke David because he didn't bring Absalom back. 
You ever thought about the wise woman of Tekoa and the way she worded that? And David soon recognized Joab was behind it. Was their friendship severed? Did David become angry at Joab for concocting this scheme? Or did he hear what the woman had to say and took it to heart? It's the latter, isn't it? And you and I remember in the next chapter, there was a reunion, if you please, between David and Absalom. What about the second one? And yet another verse that can be of some value to us. Suppose the correction, suppose the information shared is at least to the degree the person knows it a correct thing, but suppose that person doesn't know everything about the matter. Aren't you and I still told to buy the truth and sell it not? If there's something about what they've shared that could be used to help ourselves, to improve ourselves, to be more Christ-like and godly, then even if the person didn't know everything, shouldn't we take to heart at least what they did say? using that at least in the way that would be good? What about the third possibility? What if the correction wasn't identically and ideally handled? Well, I confess that does offer some possible challenge. But what about verses like Proverbs 15, 32 and Proverbs 19, verse 20, where you and I are overwhelmingly encouraged to be the recipients of instruction? We are said to be wise when we hear instruction and when we take that to heart. So even if it wasn't handled ideally, let's face it, there may have been something in what the person said that should be taken to heart, allowing us to become better, more mature, and stronger than we would have been otherwise. May I offer one additional thought about that? When someone does criticize it correct, we ought not be those that hold grudges just because they did it. We ought not be those who will forever hold over them this issue. Well, you said that to me, and you brought that to my attention. That isn't the right way to handle it. That isn't the godly and Christian way of, res of responding. Far more to the point would be to understand that in our station of life, we may well be called on to either give or receive criticism. And hopefully these little guidelines could be of some value to us. Because isn't it true? Our God is one who criticizes. How often have you had your toes stepped on when you read this book? How often have you and I found ourselves on the receiving end of criticism from the God of heaven? Now I admit we have never had need to criticize Him. But I would think that degree... That way in which he's criticized us should be a matter that could help us learn to be the recipients of criticism in a more general way. Let's close our lesson like this. There's great value in, in discussing and contemplating both giving and receiving criticism. In many ways, we have highlighted the importance of using the truth as we carry out this criticism, whether that be on the matter of receiving it or whether that be on the matter of giving it. I hope we've each been encouraged and helped as we are people who then would desire to both give and receive criticism in the best way possible. Tonight, I hope that in that way, we each can launch forward in this week and, yea, in the future days of our life, ready 
to deal with criticism in the best way possible. Tonight, if there's someone in this assembly that's not a faithful child of God, it may be that you have walked away from the faith. You once knew it, lived it, and loved it. But in days recent, you've begun to behave in ways that have, quite frankly, brought an element of shame upon the Christian name and upon your person. You know the Lord still loves you. And despite that set of circumstances, He would in a moment forgive it. All you have to do is repent of it and confess it. And He would be honored to forgive it and allow you to occupy that status and state of faithful fidelity and association to Jesus the Lord. If we could help you in that way tonight, we'd love to do that. Brother Eddie has chosen this song of encouragement, and we use this as a time to extend the Lord's invitation while together we stand and while we sing.